Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another bonus episode of History and Film. I feel like we've been doing quite a few of these lately, so you're welcome. <laughs> and before we talk about today's film, First Cow, I wanted to do a quick follow-up or make Logan do a quick follow-up on Jean Lafitte and how he relates to Disneyland. Yeah, so, well, real quick, before I go into this stuff, I remember, I, I don't know if I had in my notes, but when I was going back and looking through this, I think I said something in the John Lafitte episode about me like not knowing anything about like in the movie when the Americans attack Barataria. Okay. And that definitely happened. I don't know why I said that or why I didn't like it it's very clearly like it's like it's on the Wikipedia page. It was in like the sources that I found. I don't know why I had that in my notes or why I said that in the show. But that's just a correction. The Americans did attack Barataria in September of eighteen fourteen. Like they show in the movie. Okay, and I, I okay, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. And I and I forget what specifically you said in last week's episode, but yeah, okay. I yeah, but for the listeners, it's gonna it's gonna sound <laughs> weird because it's like with you just this was last week's episode, but this was I mean, how many months ago was that that we <laughs> yeah. actually recorded versus what we're recording right now? But that's anyway, that's just a little uh, a little correction. But yeah, so there's there's a uh, some interesting connections between. Jean Lafitte and uh, Disneyland and Disney World. And this is from a, uh, I saw this from a YouTube channel called Offhand Disney. And this guy has like multiple videos where he actually like goes to the park and shows all the different little uh, references and stuff to Lafitte. But basically the overarching idea is that Disney had a fascination with Jean Lafitte and it shows in the uh, New Orleans area and the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disney. So there is um, an anchor that's there that said with a plaque next to it that says that the that the anchor is from a ship commanded by Jean Lafitte. I mean, I don't think that's true. I don't think the anchor is actually from a Jean Lafitte ship, but just the fact that they have a little plaque there with his with his name on it does kind of signal this connection to Jean Lafitte that mm. you see throughout throughout the park. The Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean uh, are both kind of based on Disney's fascination with Jean Lafitte, including uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean, the area where you get on the ride is called Lafitte's Landing. Huh. Um, and then there's also on Tom Sawyer Island, there is a uh, Lafitte's Tavern that's like pirate themed. And apparently there were plans at one point, uh, this, this never materialized, but there were plans to revamp Tom Sawyer Island into a Barataria Island attraction that would like more definitively and outwardly kind of tie Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean together into one story that was actually about Jean Lafitte, like unambiguously. Because right now there's like the little connections and stuff and they have like the little, you know, like the anchor and, you know, there's a couple things named after Lafitte, but like they're, the story of of Jean Lafitte isn't explicitly mentioned in any of these rides right. or attractions, but they were going to, there were plans to make that happen. Um, and all the details are in the, are in the 
these videos by this offhand Disney YouTube channel. But um, it, it actually sounds really cool. It's kind of a shame that this didn't materialize because the idea was to, uh, instead of riding out to Tom Sawyer Island on a boat on the little barges, it, there would be a tunnel that went under the, the river and came up on the island. And the tunnel would start in a graveyard near Haunted Mansion, and the start of the tunnel would actually be the grave of Jean Lafitte. Huh. And so you would go into his tomb, and then, uh, you know, because it's, it's New Orleans themed, so they all ha- they have like the big above ground oh, right. uh, tombs because of the because the water table's so high. So it'd be, you know, a New Orleans style tomb of Jean Lafitte would be the entrance to this tunnel and be like pirate catacombs all the way through this tunnel, and then you would come up into a, like, a shipwreck, like a capsized ship that would be Barataria Island, and there would be, you know, you'd go from the haunted theme to the pirate theme, but yeah, and there's, there's, like, a ton of, like, little references throughout Disney World and Disneyland that they go into detail with, but um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting that Jean Lafitte and his story and his legend, like, plays such a big part in these Disney parks. Is there, maybe I missed it, is there any, obviously he was a pirate of the Caribbean or whatever, is there anything on the rides themselves, like while you're on the Haunted Mansion ride, oh hey, here's this picture, or while you're on Pirates of the Caribbean, it's like, oh, that pirate is Jean Lafitte, or is there anything that detailed? No, 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 nothing, okay. nothing like that, but just, I mean... More just decoration stuff is kind of with the... Decoration like, stuff, yeah. there's a couple, yeah, they use his name a couple times, and then like, kind of historical stuff where it would fit in his time period so obviously pirates of the caribbean takes place in like like genre lafitte literally was a pirate of the caribbean uh but then tom sawyer island used to have um like an andrew jackson theme room where it's like andrew jackson talking to davy crockett and so like that also fits timeline wise with with being uh jean lafitte so yeah more more timeline and like nods and then like a couple of naming things but no no outright character like, oh, this gotcha. pirate is Jean Lafitte in uh, in the ride. And I'm pretty sure that we had also looked that like the film Pirates of the Caribbean was about a about a century before uh, Jean Lafitte's time, but it, definitely the same the same world and all that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. I, I like little Easter egg, uh, little Easter eggs like that when they do the history stuff. And again, apparently Disney and I haven't watched these videos you're talking about, but apparently Disneyland is like real big on that stuff my cousin in orlando will even talk about like uh hidden mickeys and stuff like that too where it's like there's there's, there's basically there's easter eggs for people who go more often or have annual passes to like look for things you would never notice uh oh yeah hidden, yeah. hidden mickeys are a big one where just apparently there's like secret places if you know where to look or things that like you wouldn't even think about like oh if you look at it from this angle it makes that look like mickey mouse or there's one hidden behind this thing over here like they're all over the place there's mickeys hidden everywhere yeah and there's like whole like online communities that are dedicated to like finding more Easter eggs and like looking for yeah the hidden Mickey's or just it, I mean any of this stuff like this offhand Disney Channel on YouTube has like 40 minute videos and oh, the, huh. like it's just him going through the park and like showing all the little Jean, specifically Jean Lafitte references <laughs> so yeah there's there's tons of tons of uh, Easter eggs and little stuff to find at those at those parks. This one sounds bizarre, but isn't there even like a isn't there like a secret restaurant or something too? I was thinking at one of them, like oh I don't know, it, like you can't just walk up to it. Okay, and and I don't think it's like okay, this sounds weird. I guess I have to look it up. I was thinking it was something like you won't just see it when you're walking around. It's not like it's it's not like Disney denies it or like it's that kind of secret, but it's more like 
like a high-end restaurant that they'll take people to that you can't actually just walk up to if you're a regular guest, but it is there at the park. Oh, okay. I mean, that's possible. There's Because of how protective Disney is of its like IP and how you know, massive the parts are, the fact that there's like tunnels and stuff underneath them for the employees and stuff to get around, like right. that there have been so many like conspiracy theories <laughs> and like kind of like a, like urban legends type horror stories of like stuff that happens at uh, Disney parks too. So yeah, there's, it's like, it's like a whole, the lore of just the Disney parks themselves is so deep and fascinating. True, true. And man, it gets me thinking just, just secret passages in general are cool and like i really really want someday to like build a house that has secret passages in it because it's just so cool of a concept not for anything even like illicit just like because it's fun yeah yeah (laughs) okay so today we're going to talk about first cow which we're doing as a bonus episode because this is not a specific historical event or person or anything like that but it does put us in a part of the united states that we have not yet dealt with and so i think it does at least a good job of putting us into the atmosphere of early oregon when it was just a territory and not yet uh, a u.s state and i was looking at the timeline this actually we did we talked a little bit about the louisiana purchase in conjunction with the buccaneer and all that but I, i actually wanted to talk a little bit more about it maybe just because when you think of Louisiana Purchase, Lewis and Clark Expedition, the Oregon Trail is definitely kind of what ties into all you know those things when you're when you're thinking about it. So I wanted to uh, look at that in a little more detail to get us to Oregon. And the biggest thing that's kind of a you know slap your forehead moment is how the Oregon Trail through the Louisiana Purchase, but Oregon was not part of the Louisiana Purchase, and like. Right. I kind of always knew that, but also I don't think I consciously ever thought about it. So the Louisiana Purchase was just kind of this big blob, and Lewis and Clark go to Oregon, so it's like, oh, so Oregon's part of Louisiana? No. And the blob of the Louisiana Purchase is also kind of simpler when you just think about it as it's west of the Mississippi River and east of the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. That, it's like there's definite borders and there's certain, I think, I don't know what river in Texas is the southern border, and there's kind of a river in what is now North Dakota, kind of on the top end there. But that is the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, Lewis and Clark were hired by the government to do essentially a scouting expedition, and they went, though, beyond that to get to the coast, knowing they were leaving the Louisiana Purchase to get to the coast in Oregon Territory. That was part of the, the plan. That's why well, you're doing it with the Oregon Trail which I guess wouldn't have been necessarily what they followed, but would have been what was kind of set up. And then settlers would have started following this Oregon Trail out west, knowing they were leaving the Louisiana Purchase into Oregon Territory. But I had just never thought about it that way as being like these separate pieces that you have the big chunk of Louisiana Purchase. And then the Oregon Territory is essentially then west of the Rocky Mountains and north of Spanish Territory. So north of California and what is now Nevada right. was Spanish Territory. So you have that Pacific Northwest that even back 150, 200 years ago was kind of its own distinct area for those reasons. So on the expedition itself, there I wrote down, there was the, the specific goals of the Lewis and Clark expedition were one, and the primary goal was something they did not accomplish. They wanted to find 
essentially a northwest passage like we've been talking about. They want to figure basically a waterway. Can we figure out a right, way to yeah. connect the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean via a network of rivers in our newly discovered area? Because that would be right. awesome economically. And yeah. they couldn't find one because it doesn't exist. Right. But is that mostly just because of the continental divide, I imagine, that basically every river goes that direction? Or no, you can still go upriver if you had to. There's basically just not even a river connection, period, to do that, I guess, which is bizarre. Right, yeah, just once you get up kind of into, like, Idaho, Montana area, it's hard to tell looking on the map because no, the right. states aren't labeled there. But, yeah, once you get there, there's it's like the Missouri River ends, and then it's you have to go over mountains to get to then the next river, which is like the Columbia River. That they went right, on, like they, right. they ended up getting all the way to the Pacific on. But yeah, there was a sizable portion of that route that ends up being overland, and it's over mountains. And, and because you mentioned it, I do, I do have to. I always have to feel like I got to give a shout out to the Columbia River because the distinction I have given it is it is the most beautiful slash impressive state border in the United States. The Columbia River dividing Oregon and Washington is. One, it seems this vast, wide river, but then you get like mountainous forest on either side. It's just absolutely gorgeous, and no other state border in the country, even like is like second place, is still sucks by comparison. Like, there's no other border that <laughs> that that compares with. I guess you could argue the Rocky Mountains themselves being a border between Idaho and Montana, but still, like the Columbia River is the best state border in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> If anybody's uh wants to win a bet, even though I guess technically it's objective or subjective. <laughs> so their other their other goals were just to kind of document, I think it all makes sense. It's a mapping thing, uh document as many of the plants and animal life along the way, uh, and then to make positive contact with the natives, which they were mostly successful at. There was not big skirmishes between the natives and Lewis and Clark. There would be a little a few things here and there, but for the most part, not so much, even though the natives weren't necessarily happy about it after. Most of the conflict there happened later. Like, they didn't necessarily have a problem with, with Lewis and Clark specifically. It was right, all right. the the people that came afterwards, basically. Now, I, I, I would imagine there's quite a bit of eye-rolling, though, from the natives, because you did kind of have this group oh, coming through. right. They were definitely, and again, they were trying to establish trade, which is good, but they also were like would put on shows of force, like, using their rifles and basically telling them, hey, y'all are now in part of what is the United States of America, so you're in our country now. Yeah. You're just like looking around like, uh, what? But they didn't necessarily fight about it. it was, I think the Indians just kind of maybe shrugged it off <laughs> to some extent. And the expedition was actually relatively, man, safe seems like a strong word, but like it was uh, over two years and only one person died as part of the expedition. Huh. Which, which is actually pretty remarkable. Yeah, they did. They did punish uh, man. There's a pretty strict discipline, and some people had to be dismissed. The other one you don't hear in grade school is how one of the other uh, health issues along the way was STDs from sleeping with the native women. Oh no! <laughs> and yeah, that it basically caught them themselves from previous encounters with Europeans. And yeah, anyway, and then the, the sub tribes that was even like a a way to like welcome them, like. Welcome, foreigner. Sleep with my wife. Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot, a lot of dealing with uh, that. Uh, the other person that never gets talked about, and not that he has that detailed of a story, but he was super, super important to the trip and never gets mentioned, is Clark's slave, a man named York, who was the only black man along the expedition. 
because it wasn't a big group. They and they gave him quite a bit of latitude while on the trip too. Like he he, he was a slave, but he had his rifle. He was out hunting and doing everything. All the other men were doing. He was essentially an equal part of the expedition, and was also a cool novelty for the natives, who many of whom had never seen a black man. Oh yeah, and there was a story that even like that one chief had like heard about as as like you know the word gets as as the expedition is approaching their territory they get word that this, there's this black man with them and this chief is skeptical and it's like i don't think that's a thing like we paint ourselves for battle and stuff i'm sure that's what he's done too and you know, he like meets him he's like literally like you know spitting on his hands to like try to rub off oh my gosh and just couldn't believe that well, like this person's skin is black <laughs> like yeah it just again when this is you know 200 years ago it's just a whole different kind of thing and so the oregon territory itself when you get to like the late 18th century, like it was almost like it's like Anarchy now, where like people were there, but no one has really claimed anything specific. So lots of countries had a presence there. There was Spanish, French, Russian, UK, American, all kind of had presence in Oregon. And ultimately, the rest of them just kind of ended up giving up their claims by the time you get to 1818 in which there was an important treaty between the UK and the US. Basically, now it's, it was still a joint territory. So this is 1818, just three years after the end of the War of 1812. And yes, my math is right. The War of 1812 <laughs> didn't end in 1812. <laughs> but uh, basically saying both the US and the UK could set up settlements in the Oregon Territory, and that was cool. Like, they basically made a treaty saying we could both set up territories Keeping in mind, it is not just modern-day Oregon, it goes all the way up into what is now British Columbia, uh, and that was all the Oregon Territory, but there wasn't necessarily a, a strict border like there is today. So that's why, like in the movie, we see that there's like, there's Americans, but then there's also a British guy, there's a Scottish, there's a couple Scottish guys, yeah. there's an Irish guy. Yeah, it all kind of makes sense, yeah. All these guys from like, from Great Britain, as well as Americans that are all settling this territory at the same time. Exactly, because this film is, it, it, the Wikipedia says it's 1820, so it's just two years after that treaty, so it makes sense that this would be a very international place, fur trading is of course the main thing, like the world they give us in the film seems pretty accurate, where again, there's it's very, very new. This movie is very dirty because they haven't had time yeah. to really make any kind of, I mean, the settlements will be permanent, but they just kind of aren't yet. So I think they do a good job of, of showing us that. And then flash forwarding just to kind of when we do get the border. So we had already had basically east of the Rocky Mountains, the current border of the United States had already been set. And then there was another treaty in 1846. They basically said, okay, this was a bad idea. Because obviously, if you say both the U.S. and the U.K. have rights to put settlements there, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> like, at some point, right? Yeah, we can't become a state if there's British settlements here. What were we thinking? <laughs> so right. in 1846, 20 years, 28 years later or whatever, they do, have, they do say, okay, now let's just extend this border all the way across. U.K. gets British Columbia. U.S. gets south of that border. Washington and Oregon aren't yet split until Oregon becomes a state. But the territory, the U.S. territory, uh, is 1846. So yes, in this film, this is not explicitly, exclusively a U.S. territory of Oregon that they are in. It's kind of this joint right. thing. And it's also then too, so they do have his friend that he meets in the film is the Chinese guy. It's very possible that there would have been a Chinese person here. I mean, 
It's just there wouldn't have been the big influx. So you do think about the influx of, you know, the quote, Chinese railroad workers. That wasn't until after the gold rush of 1849. So when you get to like 1850s, 1860s, when you have the gold rush followed by the massive railroad construction, there's a massive influx of Chinese immigrants. But before that, because you had the Spanish making their trade route to the Philippines from the western United States, that did become kind of a two-way thing. And people who would have been in Southeast Asia would have been maybe starting to come back and forth. So a few people here and there would have come back and forth. So it is very possible yeah. this guy's here. And they even mentioned him getting in trouble for killing a Russian. So again, there would have been Russians in this area too. All, all that tracks. So yeah, I do think they put us in a very realistic world there. I think, uh, I don't even think that they were trying to say, that, like, I don't think the movie is trying to say though that he is... I mean, obviously, they don't they don't say anything about him directly, but I don't even think it's implied that he's a railroad worker. Oh no, no, no! I, I, no, no! I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that you were implying that either. I'm just saying. Okay. I think in the movie, I don't know. He, he seems he's very educated. He speaks English very well, and then we also see at towards the end of the movie, he also speaks at least one native language. Mm. He's been here a while. Yeah. He seems to have some sort of backstory that they never talk about but that is implied by how sharp he is you know the fact that like the the whole scheme of the movie is basically his idea right and then the fact that he's like you know can speak english and a native language but is chinese i don't know like i I think there's some some interesting stuff in his in his history that they that they leave out of the of the movie itself Yes, and I, I, I was just saying that like it's it's very possible he would be here, even though it seems right. he, he seems out of place. Maybe, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the movie the movie itself. This was one I actually didn't. Ha- I I did put it on my top ten of twenty twenty at, at the ten spot, and it's one that's it's a ninety six slash sixty four on Rotten Tomatoes, which I usually end up on the lower side of that. But I actually really like this movie. It's it's very beautifully done and and simple. And I thought engaging for as simple of a story as it is. How did you like it? I don't know if I'm a, all the way on the 64 side, but I'm okay. probably closer to that than I am the 90, okay. what is it, 93 or something? 96, yeah. 96, yeah, okay. I, I think I'm closer to the to the 60s than I am to the 90s on this movie. Okay. It's just the main thing for me, so the acting is is great. The editing is awesome. Well, let me specify though i mean like the editing in the way that that the director can like tell the story without needing to put a bunch of stuff in the dialogue there's a lot of like cuts that imply things she's a great visual storyteller yes yeah however there are numerous times in this movie where it's like okay when's the cut gonna come all right why isn't it cut yet all right why are we just looking at this like there's a scene the the one that sticks out of my mind the most is the first time so right after cookie meets king lou um at the settlement and they go back to king lou's house yeah it's like a three minute scene of him just sweeping and then like in the background is king lou chopping wood it's so long and i was like why this movie could have been probably 45 minutes long (laughs) they just have there's so many scenes where there would be like a 30 to 40 second shot of a boat going down the river and it's like whoever was in that boat that boat none of that ever comes back in the story again granted it's shot well it's a good looking shot but why did this 
or uh, a shot of like two native people messing with the fire on the side of the river. That's like a good 30, 30, 40 seconds long. Neither one of those characters ever comes back again. No, right. It's like, why, why did all of these extra things need to be in there? And I understand that there are people who say, well, you know, you just don't get it. Or, oh, actually, that's genius because it like puts depth in the world. And like, that's to show that there's the, you know, the other characters. Like, I understand why the director chose to put those in there. I just didn't like it. <laughs> I I thought it would have been better if you just stay focused. <laughs> What's funny is, uh, so I, I should say, I did not rewatch this movie so i haven't seen it in two or three years uh since it first came out i probably probably guess a couple years ago i would have seen it i keep thinking about how too when you take a trip you don't remember the three-hour layover at the airport you remember the highlights so i did obviously like at the time and put it number 10 but things like that i've kind of forgotten and i'm just Mm. kind of remembering the bullet points of the story which is kind of funny where Again, I didn't have it like as my number one. I did have it, you know, number 10. But yeah, I, I would say those things are ambiance and that, yes, I, I see the runtime of two hours and, and two minutes. And uh, it, it definitely, definitely could have been shorter uh, and things yeah. like that. You are correct. They would uh, would not have been missed if they had been cut and they wouldn't have sacrificed the story. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think, an ambiance mood thing she was going for, kind of a world building thing. But yes, you can do that without having a three-minute scene of someone sweeping a, a floor. Yeah. But yeah, so we should say, this. so the whole story is uh, Cookie, our main character, who I forget the actor's name, but he is Leonard in the first season of Umbrella Academy. He is the cook along the expedition with these fur trappers and then befriends a uh, Chinese man who is on the run for murder, basically, right? Is that the summer? And then they, then they re-meet back up when they get to the settlement. Yeah, yeah, and the actor's name is John Magaro. Okay, okay. So Cookie is the cook, and Lou is very entrepreneurial-minded, and they kind of just start, you know, talking shop, and Cookie wants to open up a place in San Francisco one day. Basically, I forget where they first see the cow. Basically, the rich local guy in charge has brought a cow to the settlement, so it is the first cow in the Oregon Territory. Right, they they hear about it in the saloon in that settlement because there's the the two Scottish guys that are bringing the cow, you know, down the river are talking about it, about how they're bringing this cow. It's the first cow in the territory and they're bringing it to the rich British guy because he wanted to have cream in his tea. And right. so he ordered this cow. They even said that they were going to bring it was three cows. It was a bull, a cow and a calf, but the bull and the calf both died on the trip and so they you know this is just the one the one cow left yes so they realize hey i think it's lou's idea if we could just steal a little milk from the cow when no one's around that would massively help your recipes and they start making these little sweet cakes and selling them at the market and again it's i do kind of just like that vibe of this could not be muddier frontier settlement and they're making these little pastry things that they're basically like funnel cakes okay yeah yeah they, they call them oily cakes in the movie but it's basically like it's just a lump of funnel cakes they have this like kind of like loose batter that then they like yeah. take a dollop of and put it in oil and then they put like honey and cinnamon on top so it's kind of yeah it's like a funnel cake right 
but that is so out of place to this world that they become insanely mm-hmm. popular as this delicacy. Because again, you're just in this, you're trapping fur, you're probably eating, you know, the equivalent of hardtack or crappy meat, you know, tough meats. And all of a sudden this guy, someone's bringing in literally a pastry that you kind of thing that you haven't had since you were out East, if ever. And they almost like fights over them, people bidding wars over them. And then finally the guy who they're stealing the milk from secretly tries one and is like oh dang and he's kind of get, almost gets like nostalgic about you know things he's had growing up and back out right. east and basically invites cookie to then come make something making for a dinner he big dinner he's having something like yeah, that. yeah well and just going back to a point you just made that is one thing that i actually appreciated in the movie was at the very beginning when we first meet cookie he's foraging for mushrooms while he's on this trip with these trappers and he's basically their like personal chef right and the guy asks him, like, hey, what do we have to eat? And he's like, well, I almost caught a squirrel, so we could have had squirrel, but we're not having squirrel. Um, I've got these mushrooms, and then other than that is hardtack and some jerky. Right. And that's it. Right. So, like, that that kind of sets sets the expectation for the audience of, like, that's what they have to eat all the time, every day, is, like, unseasoned raw mushrooms, maybe some squirrel meat, or, like, some sort of, like, salted meat like preserved like a jerky or hardtack like that's that's it right if we are lucky we will get squirrel right yeah yeah <laughs> and then yeah it'll and again so just kind of we'll spoil the whole story here they do eventually kind of get caught and have to go on the run because i mean they were stealing from this guy and he's not too happy about it and i i forget how that goes to like they are instantly feeling for their lives like would they have been hung for as thieves like I, i'm trying to think how that would have played out i think it was just because it's the Oregon Territory in 1820, there's nothing stopping you from murdering someone for any kind of slight against you, especially if you're the like the richest guy in the territory. Right, he's like, in charge. Yeah, yeah, they're for sure dead. It's not like he's gonna like okay. turn them over to the police and they're gonna have to like pay a reparation or like they're gonna get a ticket for shoplifting the milk or something. Like, no, he's just gonna kill them. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> <laughs> And the, yeah, they ultimately so the the whole framing device. So we don't actually see them die, and I kind of I kind of do and don't like the framing device. So we actually the movie actually starts in present day, and uh, someone out walking their dog. Oh, it is, and isn't it actually maybe from Arrested Development? The actress. Oh, I don't, I I don't know. I haven't I haven't seen Arrested Development, but it's uh, is it Aaliyah or Aliyah? Shakat Shakat. I I don't know how to pronounce her name. I've seen her in so much stuff. Okay, but. Yeah, she's oh she okay. So she is in Arrested Development. Okay, but yeah, she. If you go look her up on Wikipedia and like see the picture of her face, like okay, I've seen her and stuff before. She's like a a pretty ubiquitous actress, especially in comedy stuff. I think I recognize her mostly from Drunk History. I think it's probably uh, the f- okay. first place that I saw her. But anyways, yes. So she's in the present day and stumbles upon a couple skeletons in the woods. Mm-hmm. Then we flash back to see how the skeletons get there. So in the story of Cookie and Lou, we never actually see them die, but we see them kind of lay down to rest at this spot. And that's kind of where the movie ends, right? Right. So the implication is they're caught and shot in that spot. Right, because you see the there's the guy, the kid is chasing them that has the rifle. Right. And he is the same kid who is the one that gets cut in line when they're selling their cakes mm. and he's about to get the last one yeah. and the guy behind him cuts him and 
buys it, takes it from him, and nobody does anything about it, and everyone leaves, and the camera lingers on him for like a good 30 seconds of him <laughs> looking like disappointed and pissed off that he didn't get the last little cake. Right. But yeah, anyways, this this guy's chasing him with the rifle, and Cookie has like a head injury. Oh, okay. And he's like, you know, he's like, basically, he's like, I can't, I can't go on. I got to like lay down and rest. Oh, okay. And so the, I think the implication there is like, he's already basically dead. Okay. And then, yeah, King Lou says, okay, I'll, I'll like keep watch. And then he lays down and falls asleep. And then there, yeah, the, the two of them are laying in the exact same position that we see the two skeletons from at the beginning of the movie. And can I just say this too? Something that really bothered me about the beginning of the movie is that this girl finds a skull, like her dog digs up a skull, and her immediate reaction is to just start digging away at all of the everything that's around her and moving all the leaves and the dirt oh. and like unearthing the skeletons with her bare hands on her own. If you ever come across a human skeleton, human remains, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. If that was like... Call the police immediately. Yeah. If that was a murder victim, you just destroyed so much physical evidence that could be used to like determine when they were there or possibly even who did that to them. And you're just like, oh, I'm so curious. I need to... It's like, you see a human skull. You know what? You know what's there. Why do you <laughs> need to use your bare hands to dig away a whole ass grave? <laughs> Call somebody. But yeah, you're right, because it, it, she, I mean, the story knows it's a 200-year-old cold case, or it's right. like nothing's going to happen, but yes. you as a person digging it up don't know that. Yes. It might be 18 months old. Right, yeah, that's, the, like, when I'm watching this happen, I was like, oh my god, this is like every true crime podcast <laughs> fangirl who, like, is, oh my god, I stumbled upon a body, I better try and, like, investigate it myself with my bare hand, not even wearing gloves, just bare hand <laughs> digging away at the skeleton, like, I, oh, that just, I, I had a lot of issues with that. But I understand that, like, yes, for the, for the movie, like, it's to get that shot of the skeletons. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, oh, just kind of a few other random notes here. So he mentions wanting to go to San Francisco, Cookie does, to open up, uh, like, that's his dream, is, like, oh, go to San Francisco, open up a bakery. So San Francisco was around. At first, I was kind of thinking, like, man, it would have been tiny at this point, which is true, because we're, we're 20 years, 30 years before the gold rush, which is what made San Francisco San Francisco, with just a huge, massive economic boom. It is kind of strategically positioned at this mouth of what is now the San Francisco Bay. So there was a settlement there. Uh, that goes back, you know, to the 18th century. I don't know. So it was it was small, but it was there. So even though it wasn't this yeah. massive city of San Francisco, it was still an important settlement for the fur trade. And so, yes, it would make sense that Cookie would want to go there and open up a, a place. But keep in mind, it was like, I, I couldn't actually find the, the census numbers because they didn't start until later. But it would have been pretty, pretty small. I mean, I, I would guess, you know, well, I, I don't even want to guess, but you're probably looking at, you know, anywhere from one to 50,000 people, not like San Francisco. Millions. And probably, and honestly, probably closer right. to the one, honestly, at that time. Yeah. It is It is a good movie. It's a good looking movie. It's just, I don't know, Just it just felt way longer than it needed to be. No, right. And there, I mean, there's a reason, I, even though I did enjoy it, I didn't feel like, oh, yeah, I need to rush and rewatch that. Also, yeah. because I'm in the middle of watching a bunch of trying to watch, you know, all the best movies of 2022 and work on that. And I'm just like, Oh, yeah. do I really want to take the time and pay to rent this movie that I enjoy, but also know it's kind of slow and there's not much else historical I'm going to get from a rewatch. So right. 
I do recommend it. Sounds like Logan is maybe tepidly recommending it. It is interesting, but it is very slow. It is kind of more of an artsy, artsy movie. But I, I just think that concept of appreciating things we take for granted is important before you get into mass industrialization and, you know, 50 cent bag of junk food on the, on the shelf that, you know, there's, there was a time when these things were special yeah, and there's something there's something kind of beautiful about seeing that. And yeah, for sure. The one I always think about too is the in uh, in the pianist with Adrian Brody. How when he's kind of again that one is based on a true story. We have to do it at some point where he's kind of held up in I think it's Warsaw. Basically, it's almost like Castaway where he's just kind of alone in in the ghetto after everyone else has been kicked out. But he's basically starving because there's nothing left in the city and one of the Nazis gives him like some bread and jam and it's like saves his life. And it just, it just made me reappreciate. And I basically sense the pianist. I can't look at bread and jam the same way because it's right, like, yeah. Oh wow. When you're desperate, the basics become that much more special. So exactly. that's what, that's what these little sweet cakes are in first cow. So it is, yeah, it's kind of neat. Good perspective. But yeah, I think that's all we have for today. So Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you later. Bye.